And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's for the reading of God's word. Would you join me in prayer once more? O Lord, you sit enthroned above the cherubim. You sit on your throne in heaven above. And the knowledge that you are with us, you are above us, your sovereign hand cares for us. That is what gives us the strength to persevere through the worst of persecution, knowing that Christ before us, his spirit within us, that he is with us to the end of the age, as your word says. We pray, God, that you would give me, as, as a speaker this morning, clarity in my expressions of your word and explaining it to your people. I pray that by your spirit you would quicken us and our minds and our hearts to understand what is written therein, to love it and embrace it and accept it, Lord. Help us to persevere through persecution, being strengthened and discipled, We pray, God, that you would help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, normally I would just focus on these few verses, but again, because we're in the midst of a long narrative section, the book of Acts is essentially a history of the Holy Spirit's working through the early church, how Christ continued his work. You see that connection between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, where Luke's gospel begins with him setting out an orderly account of what Jesus began to do in his life and ministry, his death and resurrection and ascension. And then he continues the book of Acts as what Christ continued to do through his spirit in his church. So we have here the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey, I believe, where he's traveling around to these various cities. He had been called and and born again, confronted by the risen Lord, and called to be his apostle, his missionary to the nations. And he had been worshiping with the church in Antioch in Israel. And the Spirit had set him apart with Barnabas, his co-worker, to be essentially the first missionaries of the church. That Christ had called them to be his witnesses to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Paul and Barnabas are set apart by the Holy Spirit, gifted and equipped and sent out to bring this gospel message to the Gentiles and to the Jews who had not accepted Christ as Lord. And so they go through, uh, in chapter 13, he begins their missionary journey. They travel to the island of Cyprus. They witness to the proconsul, the governor there. Um, They witness also to the Jews in Antioch and Pisidia, They go to the synagogue and they reason with them from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining that Christ was the Lord. Christ was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And some were intrigued. Some wanted to listen and hear this message, but many of them rejected it, rejected Christ with hostility, with hardened minds and hearts. And so they drove Paul and Barnabas out, persecuting them, driving them away with threats of violence because of their gospel witness. 
And so we come into chapter 14 as they come into the cities of Iconium. Let me read through this briefly. Uh, Sorry, chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, as was their practice, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to this word by His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who couldn't use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, And seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done this, they had lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likenesses of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, They brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles and Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving them uh, rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts and food with gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And so we see them moving on to the city of Iconium, the next on their missionary journey track, and then the same thing happens that was at Antioch. They go to the synagogue, they present Christ as the Messiah, persecution arises, and on threat of violence, they're driven out of the city. So they go into Lystra, another one of these Greek cities, and when Paul performs a miracle, a miraculous healing, and jumps this man up who had never walked before, they think, it's Zeus and Hermes, it's the gods come down in the flesh. And they come and they start and try to offer sacrifices to him to honor these these Greco-Roman gods that they believed in. And so in coming to, to bring the gospel message and in, and in verifying their gospel witness with signs and wonders, the people take that as a sign to worship them as gods. This is the heart of idolatry that people were captured by, and it broke Paul and Barnabas' heart. They tore their clothes. They said, we're men like you. Do not worship us. Worship the true and living God who created the earth and the sky and the sea and all that is in them. Not some God of the sky, God of the sea, God of thunder, whatever it may be. Worship the true and living God who has come to us in Christ Jesus. And that even at this, they barely kept him from offering sacrifice to them. And then as this is happening, the people from the previous cities catch up with them in Lystra 
and they stir the crowd up against them there too. So now this crowd that had just tried to worship them as gods in the flesh is stirred up in violent persecution against them. The crowd that was cheering for them in one moment was trying to cheer for their death the next. And in studying this passage, I've done a lot of study in church history. It's a very encouraging thing for me to hear the stories of the saints who have gone before us, those who have lived and suffered and died for their witness to Christ. It's a great spiritual benefit to me. I think of the various men and women who have suffered for their faith, like Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, who died some 60-odd years ago in trying to bring the gospel witness to a tribe, I believe, in South America. They came out of their plane trying to make contact with this tribe and were, were killed. I think of Adoniram Judson. I just finished his huge biography, To the Golden Shore, the first American missionary to foreign lands. He became a Baptist in his way over, so I especially like him. But he goes to the, 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 the country of Burma across from India and Asia, the place where there was harsh persecution against anything other than their established Buddhist religion. Hearing the way that he suffered and persevered through years imprisonment, through more diseases than I can count, like, I, I wouldn't even go on to list them because as I was reading through, I would go and I would look up definitions for all the different things that he contracted, like spinal meningitis and, and uh, all sorts of horrible, horrible things. He was there witnessing to the gospel and baptizing people, coming to faith in Christ and forsaking their foreign ways in the midst of burying his children and two wives the amount of suffering and persecution that it cost him to bring the gospel witness to that city. I think even back further to a man named John Rogers, who was the first, was the first man martyred under Bloody Mary in the time of the Reformation in England. He was killed as a Protestant for saying that the, that the Lord's Supper is not a re-sacrificing of Christ. He was killed for daring to say that we should have the Bible in our own language, and they put him to death for it even back further to Polycarp in the second century of the church, a man who was a leader in the church who had been discipled maybe by some of the apostles or the apostles' disciples. He gave this testimony from the record of his death. They asked him to recant his faith in Christ, and he said this, Eighty-six years have I served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. That is gutsy. <laughs> and he meant it. He sealed that confession with his blood. I think even back to the first martyr of the church, Stephen, who we see earlier in the book of Acts, who in bearing faithful, spirit-filled witness to Jesus Christ as the risen Lord, God in the flesh, the deliverer of his people, the savior of all who would believe in him. And they killed him for it. And as the crowd was stoning Stephen to death, they cast their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus. He would know in our story as Paul the apostle, who is himself now bearing witness and being stoned for his gospel message. 
This is the gospel that transforms the persecutors of the church into their greatest missionaries. And there is no other message that's worth suffering for in this way. There is no other message worth living for. So the envious Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They came to pick a fight. And so it should be a warning to us as well in our day. We have a great amount of freedom in this country with a at least a Judeo-Christian ethical heritage, at the very least, yet we should not be surprised when the crowds turn against us because of our witness to Christ. We should learn from the generations who came before us. We should be aware and ready that there may be times that people may love us for one reason or another, and in the next may hate us and call for our persecution because of our faithful witness. All who desire to live a godly life for Christ Jesus will suffer, the Scripture says. And so the crowd is stirred up against them. Paul is stoned. They think he's, he's battered to death to the point where they drag his body out of the city and they leave him. And so his disciples, his followers, those who had come to Christ, come around him and they, they find his body and he gets up. He doesn't just get up. He marches back into the city they just dragged him out of. And he doesn't just go back unafraid of further persecution, but he goes the next day also with Barnabas to Derby. So it's not just that he was pummeled by stones by this angry mob and dragged out of the city. He didn't just get back up and march back into the city. The next day, he also walked 30 miles, probably on foot, to the next town to keep preaching the gospel. I've never walked 30 miles in my life. I don't know anyone today who'd be like, hey, let's take a, a quick jot over the Springfield by foot. I don't, I'm not in that good of a shape. So I think this must be some sort of miraculous recovery, something that the Spirit of God had protected him and healed him in some way. But I guarantee you it wasn't a painless thing for him. It wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't a fearless thing. We shouldn't glorify persecution and, and act like it's... And we shouldn't... I don't know, what's the word for it? We shouldn't glorify it as if it's some fun, cool thing. We should be realistic about what it costs to follow Christ. We shouldn't glamorize it. That's the word I was trying to think of. But it's also worth it that Paul, as he continues to witness and to preach this gospel message, he doesn't shrink back from his witness because of this persecution. He continues on. They go on. Verses 21 and 22, they continue to preach the gospel from city to city and making many disciples. They are not shrinking back from their gospel witness despite the persecution, despite knowing the crowd may come to them next. They do not shrink back from their gospel witness. They continue to preach the gospel and to make disciples. That is the great missionary task. That, in many ways, is what the Great Commission is about. That's actually what I'm preaching on this afternoon, so it's pretty, pretty stuck in the head at the moment. The Great Commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us, knowing that all authority in heaven on earth is His, and that He is with us to the end of the age. That's the great commission given to the apostles and, in some sense, to all of us through them. Not just to make converts, not just to have people pray a certain prayer or fill out a decision card or even just to get baptized, 
but to make disciples, to call out people to lay their lives down, to carry their cross and follow after Christ. To be a disciple is to be a student, a learner, a follower. It means to be shaped into the image of the person you are being discipled by. So to be a disciple of Christ is more than just what box you check on your demographic survey. To be a disciple of Christ is to follow in the footsteps of Christ, to endure persecution for living in his way. And so, not even content with this, they went and they traced their journey back through the cities that had just persecuted them and driven them out. That they weren't afraid even to return to the place that they had just been attacked by the mobs and continue to strengthen the souls of the disciples that they had made. They go to them seeking to evangelize, seeking to make disciple out of these people, and in making disciples to establish local churches. The church, if you read the New Testament, is central to God's plan for his gospel. It is central to discipleship. The Great Commission is not fulfilled just when we have people who come to faith in Christ, nor even when they commit to live a life in faith and obedience in Christ. The Great Commission is not fully fulfilled. The missionary task is not fully fulfilled until local churches are established. And so we see them as they trace their way back through these cities. They strengthen the souls of the disciples. They gathered them together, and as we see in the next verse, they appointed elders for them in every church. They didn't just evangelize them. They discipled them, and as part of their evangelism, gathered them together into local bodies, like us today, like this body, gathered together to hold one another accountable to their faith, to evangelize together, to serve one another, to serve together and under the appointment of gifted, qualified men to be under the leadership of Christ's church. And so they go, they strengthen the souls of the disciples. We'll talk a bit more about the elder thing in a minute. They go and they strengthen their souls, reaffirming to them the gospel that they had proclaimed, encouraging them despite the persecution that they were facing, that this is the path to heaven. Makes me think of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read it. It's kind of an allegory of, of the, the character Christian trying to make his way towards the celestial city. And it's a decently long book because it's kind of a complicated journey, as it is for all of us. As disciples, the journey of life is a twisted and complicated way. It is a narrow path and a narrow gate. And at times there will be opponents, persecution, hardship, difficulty. It is not an easy road to take, but it is a road we must take and a, and a road that, by God's grace, we have good company on because Christ doesn't leave us alone. They strengthen their souls and they encourage them to persevere in their faith despite persecution. Kendall and I were talking about this last night, a little about in the beginning of Revelation with um, with John's message to the churches inspired by Christ, Christ speaking to his churches and urging them to persevere through persecution, even to the midst of death, just as he himself had persevered to the point of his death, securing his resurrection and ours through it. That's, again, another sermon for another time, but amazing stuff. They encourage them 
to continue in the faith because through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The entrance into the kingdom, into God's realm of heavenly rulership and authority that Christ has already established and inaugurated in his work on this earth, and then in the full and final entering into this kingdom at the day that he returns in his glory, entering into his kingdom through persecution, through suffering, through tribulation. And so these, these are, are very complex subjects in a lot of way, reading through what the scripture says about God's kingdom and and tribulation and how these two things go together, how in many ways in this Christian life they run parallel, that in one sense we are already citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We are sojourners and exiles in this world because our citizenship is in heaven above, and yet also we face tribulation as we walk this side of the new heaven and new earth. That these things run together. There are, there are certain theological traditions that will, will narrow these two concepts down into very specific things in the future. That tribulation, properly speaking, is something that happens at a certain future age and time. And that the kingdom as well is something that we're waiting for, for it to really be established. I've heard popular, even uh, somewhat reformed identifying preachers say stuff like, Christ's kingdom is not actually here yet. But when we look and examine it according to the scriptures, we see the way that tribulation and kingdom run together through this life. That the way that we persevere through tribulation is because of the kingdom of God that is already among us. That Christ, again, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He rules and reigns today through his church and his people. And he is bringing his gospel, his kingdom, breaking through like the sun breaking through the clouds, sometimes darker than others, but one day clear and noonday. So tribulation and kingdom, theologically loaded phrases. But just to examine them a little bit, this this idea of tribulation, of oppression, affliction, pressure, that's kind of the, the more, literal, uh, more literal understanding of the word, that it is pressure, that there are forces that are outside of us, the forces of this world, of, of the flesh, the devil in this fallen world that are pressing against us, that are pressing us down, that are providing resistance to us as we seek to press on in this Christian life. And yet we know that, that we are destined for tribulation in this life. This is not anything that any Christian is exempt from. This is not, as certain prosperity gospel preachers would say, the more you believe, the more carefree your life will become. That you're only suffering because you don't have enough faith. That is not what Christ has taught. That is not what Scripture teaches. What it teaches is, as 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-4 says, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that you may not be moved by these afflictions. Same word, tribulation. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. And when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you also know. And kingdom as well. 
The, the idea that the kingdom in some sense is already at hand. Jesus said that if the, if the dead are raised, the blind have their sight, the, the sick and the poor are healed and demons are cast out, it is because the kingdom of God is already among you. That his primary message in his preaching was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet in some sense as well, the kingdom is yet to come. Praise God that this fallen way of the world with its sickness and sin and weakness is not all that there will ever be. There is still a fulfillment, a consummation, the great Christian hope that we all long for of Christ's return and the renewal of all things. That his resurrection is the promise, the first fruits of our own resurrection. But we, we see as well in the scriptures that there will be some who do not persevere through this persecution. We see the unfortunate reality, and, and it breaks my heart to think about all the people that I was with in, in private school and in youth group and in Sunday school and all these people who made profession of faith and, and for a while seemed to be in love with the Lord and wanted to study the scripture and, and wanted to serve others, and they loved the church, and yet today they are so far from the truth that when persecution arose, they, they withered because they had no root. As Jesus said, that parable, the parable of the sower in Mark 4, 14 through 20, it's like a sower who sows the word of the gospel. There are some that are along the path, the word is sown, and Satan comes and snatches it away before it takes root. There are others where the gospel falls on rocky ground. They have no root. They they immediately receive it with joy. They don't have a root and so do not endure when tribulation and persecution arises. Others are sown among thorns where the word is received, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things choke the word and keep it from producing fruit. But then there are those on good soil where the word takes root and produces its fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Those who have true and living faith, not a dead faith, but a true and living faith in Christ. Those who persevere through persecution and bear fruit, not as a source of their salvation, but as the result of it. There will be those who fall away. And it's our duty as a church to encourage our brothers and sisters to persevere, to come alongside one another when we face persecution. And not just for our faith, but in the midst of the suffering of this life of, of our, the weakness of our flesh, of the temptations that reside within us, of sickness and injury and illness and, and all of these things that discourage us, of sleepless nights with newborns and the big things and the little things and everything in between. Our call is to encourage one another to persevere through the midst of these tribulations on our way to the celestial city, knowing, however, that 1 John 2.19 They will be those who go out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they were not all of us. And so we should be prepared as well in this life for the suffering, for the persecution that is to come. From those those classic three, the world, the flesh, and the devil, our enemies, the sources of the opposition we face in this life, so let's look at these as well, the, the, the suffering, the persecution of our fallen flesh, 
Not that our bodies in themselves are a bad thing, not that matter is evil, as some religions and philosophies have taught, but rather than us as we have been affected by the fall of Adam and humanity with him, that we face these temptations. Going back to Romans chapter 7, verses 21 and on to 8, verse 1, Paul writes about this struggle with his own flesh. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, another, wall, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, he cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh serves the law of sin. Yet, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That praise God despite the struggles that we have with sin and temptation, those who are in Christ will persevere. There is no condemnation. No condemnation now I dread. What a fitting song. We should expect these things. We should be on guard against them, on sickness and weakness. The effects of the fall is that has our, our bodies as they continue to break down and to weaken with age as, as sickness and virus and, and fear and anxiety and all of these things, the way that they attack us from within and without. And our enemy, the devil, the, the great deceiver, the accuser, the enemy of God's people, this is something that, unfortunately, again, there are those today who would question if the devil is a real threat or if he really is there at all. And yet, reading through the Gospels and the Scriptures, to believe in Jesus is to believe in the devil as well. Because believing in Jesus means believing what he taught us about our enemy, that he would be out for us, that Christ fought him and defeated him. That he is not some rival power to him. There is not some galactic struggle between light and darkness as if they were equal and opposite powers. No, God has all rule and reign and authority. We should not be captivated by our fear of the enemy. He's a dog on a leash, Martin Luther said. We shouldn't fear him, but we should be on guard against him because he does still bite. He is, as Scripture says, like a roaring lion prowling around. Um, sorry, this is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-10. through 10. He urges the church, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, persecution, tribulation, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. He is an enemy we must be on guard against and and I feel like as we've begun this church plant that he's been on a special, he's been aiming for us a little more than normal lately. I could tell you a whole lot of things, especially Mario's family. I don't want to speak on his behalf, but we could use your prayers. 
We feel the, the attacks of the enemy, the weakness of the flesh in a fallen world, but yet in seeing a new church planted by God's grace, there is a strength that helps us to persevere beyond anything the enemy can throw at us. So we should be ready for these things and even for the way of the world around us. Again, we experience a great degree of freedom more than most of our brothers and, Christian, and sisters in Christ through many nations across the world and in history who have stood up for the truths of Scripture. All kinds of persecution we, we expect to face. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 9, He warned His disciples that they will deliver them up to tribulation and put them to death, and they will be hated by all nations for His name's sake. Paul writes in Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is just a, a smattering of verses. There is much in Scripture to encourage us in this. 2 Corinthians three sixteen through 17 We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, the things that are unseen are eternal. That the sufferings in this life in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, the, the magnitude of our being in the presence of our Savior for all ages, beholding His glory and entering from one stage of glory with Him to the next, it makes every suffering and persecution of this life light and momentary in comparison. I'm a relatively young man. I know for sure that there are many of you who have suffered far more than I have in this life. And I think of Paul as well, that he writes this having been shipwrecked and beaten and whipped and stoned and imprisoned and persecuted and, and spent nights at sea and all these things. But he counts even being dragged out of the city, near, stoned nearly to death by a crowd as a light and momentary thing in comparison with what awaits us and the glory of Christ being revealed through our perseverance. Just one more. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is our source of power. This is the fuel of our perseverance. The presence of Christ with His people. The power of the Spirit indwelling us and strengthening us. And using even our persecutions to shape us more and more into Jesus' image and likeness. The way that our suffering, the pressure of this world, works like a press to refine us. That it works even like a furnace to burn off impurities. So that as the Spirit uses the suffering of this life, we are not burnt up and destroyed, but refined and made more like a pure gold reflecting the design of its maker. Our salvation comes through suffering and self-denial. Now these are not the basis of our salvation. Our good works, our perseverance, our love, our affection, whatever it may be, our goodness or badness is not the basis of our salvation. By God's grace, the basis of our eternal salvation is the righteousness of Jesus Christ accounted to us by faith. 
But this is not a dead faith. It is not a faith that exists alone and by itself. It is a faith that lives and acts and moves and loves and perseveres. It is through suffering and self-denial because this is what the Holy Spirit carries us through in this life. And this is His powers, His power. It is not ours. As, as Paul said, this is from the passage from last week in 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul says that he is the least of the apostles, yet and the last of them, but he, he worked more than any of the other disciples. He was the only one who went on this, this amount of missionary journeys and I guess has suffered as much as he did. And yet he says, it was not I, but the grace of God within me. And that is what all of us proclaim, that as we persevere, as we continue in faith, as we continue to bear witness with this gospel message, faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, as we bear this witness to our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and strangers we happen to meet in the street, whatever it may be, whatever circumstance God gives us to present this gospel, and no matter how we, perse- how we suffer and persevere persecution through it, All of it is by the grace of God. Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. As Jesus said again in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are carrying the burden with Christ, then even stonings and firings and the hostility of family members and even arrest, whatever it may be, is a light burden in comparison. And so continuing on into verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting... They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So as part of them making disciples and fulfilling this great commission and and fulfilling their purpose as missionaries of Christ, they weren't content just to make a few disciples in a given city and then let them sit alone and have their own personal relationships with Jesus and kind of do their own thing. Their, Their mission was not complete until they had returned through these cities, gathered them into local churches, into congregations, just as we are today, to gather them together, and even to appoint leadership for them. Men who meet, it, meet the biblical qualifications for elders and deacons according to his word. We see that this is part of God's design, that it is not his design for us to have a faith in him, and yet to go alone as lone wolves in this world, kind of, uh, kind of defending ourselves. There's no lone ranger Christians in the scripture. Even Paul had Barnabas in this passage and the other disciples and apostles that might have gone with them. And so as we evangelize, we proclaim this gospel message, this evangel, with an with a accompanying demand for discipleship. Not just to preach the good news and then say, good luck, hope you persevere, but to strengthen the souls of the disciples, to ensure that these people are gathered together into local bodies of churches, where they can be encouraged and strengthened and and held accountable to their profession of faith and God's truth, where they can be shepherded by the people that God has called to be leaders in these churches. 
This evangelism first requires us to have a clear understanding of the gospel message, not clouded by the influence of our works or whatever wiles of the world that may twist and turn this gospel message. We must have a clear understanding of the good news as Jesus Christ, living and dying, rising again, ascending and returning for the salvation of all who believe on him. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all who believe in them would never perish, but have eternal life. This gospel message we proclaim, which must always be on our lips, always in our minds, always in our hearts. This is what makes us persevere. That we need to preach the gospel, not just to others, but to ourselves every day. That we need to prepare ourselves by persecution, remembering that Christ is before me. He's with me. He's for me. That he prays for me and he's given me his spirit to persevere through this day. We need a bold confidence to bring this gospel message, knowing that it's not our power and ability to convince people that this salvation occurs, that no one is saved by our eloquence or wisdom, that God in his sovereignty uses the gospel message to work a change in a person's heart, that he removes their heart of stone in a miraculous heart surgery and gives them a heart of flesh that beats with love for its creator. It is the work of God through our gospel message. Paul talks as well in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they hear unless someone goes and preaches to them? How will someone preach to them unless they are sent? It all ties together. So we take every opportunity that we are presented with to share this gospel with our family, our friends, our co-workers, with strangers, And they were not content to leave them alone either. We aim also to disciple them, to have have ongoing relationship with them, to model the faith for them, to teach them to obey what Christ commanded, to keep his truths and believe his teachings, to encourage them in the faith and even correct one another when we fall short of this truth. And that as we are gathered together as disciples, we are gathered together into local churches. That is, that is, it is, run that is shepherded by God's appointed under shepherds. The men in these local churches, the elders and the deacons, who by God's grace have been qualified and gifted and called to these roles of leadership. These aren't tyrants. These aren't domineering men. These aren't the CEOs or the presidents of these churches. These are under shepherds given a delegated responsibility to care for these local churches. And it's significant as well that we see pastors, elders, plural, for individual churches, that ideally there would be a plurality of leadership. And I know that you're in really good hands with Kendall and with both of your deacons, and that's an amazing thing. But also that as your church continues to grow and establish itself, that you should encourage one another to seek roles of of authority in some sense, that you should seek to take on responsibility and at least consider if God may be calling you one day to a point of leadership. If not even in this church, maybe in some other church. Maybe that a decade from now, five, ten years from now, that you may be a church planter on behalf of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, which I highly recommend, by the way. These are men that meet the qualifications from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. We don't have enough time to work through that today, but these are the qualifications the Scripture gives us for elders and deacons. No one appoints themselves. They are qualified by God 
and recognized by his church. And the Great Commission, the Great Commission is for all of us. This duty of evangelism and discipleship and loving and serving our local church, it's what we are all called to. And that all of us, even in the scope of grand missions, of, of reaching the lost here and far away, all of us are called in some sense either to be a goer or a sender. That even if we haven't individually been called to be an elder or a deacon or a church planter or a missionary, that it's our duty as Christians, as believers, to be praying for, encouraging, sustaining, and, and supporting by whatever means that God has given us, those who are sent to these roles. Very few people in the church will be goers, but all churches should be senders and supporters. And so, as we conclude, we must remember that God uses the harshest trials to shape us into his strongest disciples. Now, you may have heard the phrase, like, God gives his strongest battles to his strongest soldiers, and that's kind of backwards, actually. It's God's strongest battles that he uses to form his strongest soldiers. That it is through our suffering and perseverance that he makes us into the men and women that he's called us to be. We could, we could think about this again from Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, which we read together either, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor presences and powers nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God that the persecutions that we go through, far from driving us from Christ and his love, enable us to develop a deeper relationship of love and faith in him. And that uh, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, if I remember it right, that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And even more so, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, for the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. That as we persevere, God and his Spirit is sustaining us by his love and using that to shape us into the men and women he's called us to be. It is a weight that in truth is greater than any of us can bear. But it is not greater than he who is within us can bear. This is what motivates and empowers our evangelism. The knowledge that Christ is with us. His spirit empowers and leads us. His word is a light to our feet and a light to our path. That our local church is a body of people committed together to loving and serving one another and to encouraging one another on this path to the celestial city. That though trouble and persecution should arise, our Lord is with us. And the end of the Great Commission, the, the goal that we press on with, our, our marching orders as we continue down this path, that as we trek towards the heavenly city, we seek to bring others along with us through evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. And then, very quickly, the last verses. I think this is very cool as well. 24 through 28 when they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, they went and spoke the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there sailed back to Antioch from where they had been sent. Where they had been commanded to, commended to the grace of God and for the work that they had fulfilled. 
And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. So it's not just that they went and shared the gospel to these cities. It's not just that they persevered through persecution. It's not that just they returned to strengthen the souls of the disciples, to establish local churches, and to appoint elders and deacons. But they even returned to the church that sent them to bear witness and testimony to what God had done through their faith. So that's my hope as well. I hope that a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, I can return and bear witness to how God has used your support and your prayers to save souls in Joliet. Would you pray with me? We thank you, our Lord and God. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your, your eternal covenant that you in yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit, have have ordained this plan, this eternal purpose to save a people for yourself, to bring your bride, your body into existence by the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, that the saints, the elect of all ages, would be gathered together and to some day be raised again with Christ Jesus as their first fruit. We pray, Lord, for persecution. We pray, no, sorry, we pray for perseverance through persecution. Freudian slip there. We pray, Lord, for your help. We pray for your good grace, for the power of your spirit to persevere. May this word be effectual to our minds, our hearts, and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.